This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome back to Almost Heretical. This is our conclusion to the gender series. And we're going to open it with a poem by Tim. Here goes. Rage, rage, mothers and daughters. Into the night, the last light of which is yours, I know it. I can feel it in my bones, and the stars are aligned to show it. But when that's no hope, remember our God made an oath. The first will be last, and the last will be first. And one great day you'll be given your place at the table which we men have blockaded in the name of Jesus, which we've gravely mistaken as a means to making our masculine kingdom. But the kingdom of heaven belongs to the women. For so long we've been so trapped by us, the hermeneutical weakest link, banishing sister kin to the kitchen sink for a hundred mistaken generations that feel from here less spirit breathed than God forsaken. And here we are living and persisting in an unnecessary and unending degradation of the sacred womb source and warm-breasted soothing strength of the very soul of this human race. How could this catastrophe be our history? Long were women banished from the altar, and the front rows kept for those the patriarchs chose for male-only honor, distorting the good news as an age-old ruse to procure for ourselves yet a bit more power. And today, the same sort of men make the same desperate moves, wielding abortion and divorce like sharpened tools in the name of an authoritarian game we call good moral order. Ignoring Jesus' words not to do as the rulers do, to serve instead of lording over. But our only gender rules are codes about where authority goes. Men rule and women are constrained to the home or the school. And thus two whole millennia of so-called Christian men have used the Bible to make women liable to abuse and silence, rape and defilement, to risk of death and exile. It was only on page three, drowning in insecurity, that Adam grasped for control and named her Eve, as if his one and only friend were just another beast of burden, to be captured and chained, tamed and given a name. But it's to all our shame that here today, we men of the dirt police their skirt lengths and birthrights while we commoditize their sexuality for our own arousing profitability, and then abandon them to bear the shame and pain of our unwanted pregnancy. And then we have the balls, literally, to say, thus saith the Lord, and thus steal Jesus like Judas for a shoddy endorsement of unwanted patriarchal enforcement like a band of misogynistic bandits betraying our own siblings for 30 bits of silver, an hour of feeling powerful. Instead of standing up on behalf of the women abused in our pews and the little girls whose worlds are burnt down and souls turned inside out by the dads and stepdads and uncles and brothers who value two minutes of pleasure over the lives of others, we defect to the men with the mics who demand loyalty and silence while questioning victims' motives and monitoring modesty. But honestly, these are our mothers, our sisters, our daughters, and one day their justice will be our judgment. As James Cone said of racism then, isn't it time the theologians get upset? What is me too in church too, but a message to men, that we too live in an age calling for a reckoning and a rage? 
So find your anger, brothers and fathers, but practice the way of the lamb unto slaughter, who, though righteous, was silent in defense of himself, showing how a good man can bear the burden of a history ruled by men. One day the table will be rearranged. Take the lower place now, or be later arraigned. That is the promise of justice and hope. This is the blessing already bestowed. So rage, rage, mothers and daughters, and all you Christian husbands and fathers, into the night and into the day, until every woman makes her way to the table. But if you find that table pervaded by men, flip that shit over and rage on again, until they're given an equal share in the kingdom. Okay, so we're doing a wrap-up episode for the gender series. There's lots of like little bits of pieces and questions and thoughts and comments that we've received from you. And we have a couple as well in our heads that we want to get to. And so that's sort of what this episode is. Uh, don't skip it. I think this is going to be really, really important. It's uh, lots of questions that maybe you have also been asking, and uh, we're going to address those today. But first, Tim, I just want to ask you a question, I guess, and maybe we can just jam for a little bit about this series and what it's kind of felt like and what it's triggered in you, any thoughts. And, um, and I think the way to do this is to ask, what have you been most surprised by in maybe the conversations that we had that episode, which you have, if you haven't heard that, go back and listen to the conversation episode. If you're only going to listen to one episode in this series, listen to the conversation episode, which we did with five women, maybe in the conversations and the emails or just the response that we've gotten. Yeah. What have you been most surprised by? And then like, I guess <laughs> this is like kind of negative, but like what kind of discourages you about this whole topic in general? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think going back to, uh, you know, before we recorded this series, going back to the study itself and getting into the scholarship, the first thing that surprised me uh, was that there was the possibility that every single one of the problematic texts relating to gender uh, could actually have always been trying to say something not problematic. Mm. Uh, and now, like, I, I know there are those out there that will probably just never believe me when I say this, but I am, I guess I won't say 100%, I'll say 99%. I'm 99% certain, honestly, that this is what Paul was actually trying to say, <laughs> that Paul was mm -hmm. actually trying to get men to lay down their power as Christians and to empower women in a world, in a community uh, with all sorts of comp complexity where that was a very difficult thing to do. Um, I think when I got into the scholarship, I hoped that I could find ways to wiggle around texts. I, I never, uh, years ago, actually had hope that <laughs> that all of the traditional view is entirely backward. And I actually believe that's just the case. Yep. So that's where I get excited. That's where when I talk about it, um, I get a lot of energy. I can feel it in my body. I get excited to talk uh, to people. I know one of the most exciting things for you in this whole series, um, or that happened because of this series, was a listener that got in touch and you had a really encouraging talk with pastor of a church in socal that is like leading the church through becoming fully egalitarian that was like a really encouraging talk for you yeah totally uh and which actually connects to your second question of kind of both where i find excitement but also where i i find some despair 
Um, it was, it was one of the most encouraging conversations I've had, uh, in the last year or so pastor called or emailed and said, Hey, can we talk on the phone? I'm thinking about moving my complementarian church into more egalitarian structure. And, uh, and I want to talk about it. And so we jumped on the phone and at that time we were only about halfway through the series. So I first basically jammed through my theological argument around first Timothy two, first Timothy three, and uh, and some bigger picture arguments about Paul's theology. Uh, but then basically we, we talked for about maybe an hour more uh, practically. And one thing I thought was really encouraging was uh, all this study, trying to teach this in podcast form, I found myself finding articulation that I hadn't had before, um, which uh, which I was thankful for. And, and one of the things that I came to terms with, I had intuited for a long time, but I'd never really known how to say it. You know, we were talking about the situation where he has basically elders and male deacons who are all going to be making this decision about what women's roles in the church are, right? So it's a bunch of men in the church who will end up making these decisions. Yeah. And I basically felt uh, very clear and uh, passionate to just say, hey, you've got two potential situations. One situation is uh, those men in those positions of leadership authority desperately want to give up their authority and their uh, ownership of leadership in that world and share it with the women in the church. And and some of them just won't be able to get past what they think the Bible is saying, right? And I said, if that's the situation, I, I understand it, I empathize with it, and this theology, these interpretations, here's your tools, right? Go you, go use that. But I said, the other possible situation is that you'll have men who you've brought up to be models of Christian leadership, right, in your church, who actually don't want to share that with women in the church. And if that's the case, regardless of your views on gender, those people should not be in leadership in your church. That is a poor example of following Jesus. What do you think that would look like, though, for someone to actually not want? Like, what would they? What would they be saying? Because I feel like they would. Um, th- that'd be a hard place to like actually articulate, right? Even if someone felt that way, like they're not going to actually articulate that. You know what I'm saying? Uh, maybe not. I mean, some will, right? We've seen, <laughs> seen and heard some of the uglier, uglier versions. Um, but I think you can feel it. Right. I, I certainly feel this from people uh, in terms of how they talk about gender issues. So what you're saying is like you basically you basically need to be in a position where you really, really, really want to find this in the text, even if you eventually get to a place where you just can't. Yeah. I mean, so so go back to, you know, this metaphor, which some of the listeners have have use this language themselves to talk about their own experience. It's, it's the metaphor of, of seats at a table, right? And Jesus told his followers to choose the, the lower, least honored seat at the table and to elevate others to the positions of honor. And so some of the women who have listened to our show have reached out and said, we've never even been at the table. We've never even had a seat, let alone the seat of honor, right? The point is you have to want to, to lower yourself and go sit at the end of the table so that someone else can sit at the top of the table. If you don't want to do that, then you just don't want to follow Jesus. And if, you, if you're not actively living your life as a good example 
of lowering yourself so that other people can be empowered, then you have no business being a so-called leader in a church, right? The whole point of leaders, the whole vision of leadership by, with Paul and Peter is to just be an example worth imitating, right? So to me, I, I've kind of used the language of there are people out there who relish in, in complementarianism. You know, for, I'll just say John Piper. Like if you actually think that this gender hierarchy is good news, like they conflate this with the gospel, right? That's not just good news for Christians, but actually needs to be shared out there in the world. Then to me, that moves far beyond uh, this idea of trying to be faithful to the Bible and you can't get past these texts. And, uh, and you're actually relishing in male, in male power instead of like a lot of us, basically we're embarrassed by this stuff, right? We're embarrassed of the church's treatment of women. We're embarrassed with people having the opportunities to grab the microphone, teach, preach, those who got to lead, those who got to be in positions of pastors, elders, whatever. To me, there's a big difference between people who want to empower women and just haven't had the the biblical hermeneutical tools, the interpretive tools to see how Paul wanted that too, and people who don't actually want it. And so even when they come across this kind of scholarship, they wiggle out of it in a, in a thousand different ways to, uh, to deny it. So for instance, like we'll probably talk here in a little bit, one of the biggest problems for complementarians in their theology is Romans 16 and other places where women get named as prominent leaders in the church, right? And so we, we mentioned like Phoebe was a deacon uh, and Junia gets clearly called an apostle. Right. Or even prominent amongst the apostles. But recently, there's just been this whole, honestly, crazy-making wave Junius. of scholarly debate. Yeah, that either, you know, this was an abbreviation of a male name, and it was really the name was Junius, right. uh, which is just completely academically lacking integrity. Uh, or then, secondarily, uh, a grammatical move to say that uh, Junia was considered prominent by the apostles, but she wasn't herself an apostle. And it just seems so strained <laughs> to me. Like at that point you realize you're trying really hard. You're reaching to arguments and uh, interpretive uh, stretches that to me clearly indicate a desire to hold on to a certain interpretation. So at that point to me, I go, if, if you aren't displaying as a Christian the desire to fully share your leadership power with everyone else around you, you aren't actually acting as an example of a Christian and therefore you shouldn't be a leader in a Christian setting. Will we be talking about this in 50 years? That's right. So that's where I go to despair. Yeah, I, I, I sort of believe the rubber's hitting the road and you look at new empowerment movements and even church to me too stuff. But I also see we can put this tool in people's lap to say, hey, these interpretations are possible. And we can talk all day about the harm that the traditional interpretation has done. And I mean, just try it on Twitter, <laughs> you know, just see how uh, tenacious people are in holding on uh, to the traditional ideas. And we, we touched on this in the last episode. Part of it is because people have lived their whole lives being trained to think this is the only interpretation, partly because the texts have been written to make it sound this way, right? So it sounds like we're the ones that are trying to go against the Bible and just go on our feelings and what we want to believe and 
pit that against like the truth on the other side. So people feel like they're standing up for the truth. But and here's why I say like, will it be will we be talking about this in 50 years? You know, this this has happened to the church before. With um, even if you go back to like Galileo and like the flat Earth stuff and um, the the Christians, you know, like he got killed, right? Like they they see something. No, this is clearly what it's saying in Scripture, and they go to their like go to the extreme to defend that. And then they adapt and they change. Like the church doesn't actually die. It adapts and it changes. And now when we read the Bible, we like, Oh yeah, of course it's not saying that it's saying this other thing. Same thing happened with slavery. The Christian, the Christianity that defended slavery in the U S and in other countries, like they go to their, like the, the most extreme and then they're, they're defending it, defending it, defending it. And now it's like the furthest thing from anyone's head that like you could, you, you would use the Bible and you would use Christianity to defend that. And so the church once again adapted and changed and it lives on essentially because it's able to adapt and change. And I know Rachel Held Evans talks about these kind of ideas a lot. And so I just really believe that like, I don't think we will be talking about this in 50 years. I think that um, the church will once again adapt and change to where when we read the Bible, and that's where I love like Cynthia Long Westfall's work and so many other scholars that have, you guys have brought up to us on Twitter and, and other places. Like, it's so cool to see like the actual like really, really good scholarship being done to um, hopefully start like changing minds and changing hearts. Um, but again, like so much of the church has gone this way and does read the Bible this way. Um, so I don't know. I just don't think we're going to be talking about it in 50 years because I think the church will adapt and change and grow. Um, so there's so much of this and I want to do like a whole episode on like going the way of culture and how we, as Christians, we often like are scared of that. But um, there's the church has done this throughout its history. It's gone the way of culture. And that's not like a dirty, bad thing to say. It's been, um, it stays alive. And, and Brian Zahn uses the like making Christianity possible for the next generation. It stays alive by adapting, by changing um, to where like now we read the Bible and we don't see like a support of slavery, but just like 150 years ago, people did. Yeah, I, I hope you're right. I mean, one of the first sad uh, realities about what you're talking about is uh, the reason you're talking about the church changing is because it's never historically been the church to get it right. The culture ends up changing and the church is forced to change uh, or or lose its relevance in the culture, right? And so yep. uh, we've, we've talked about the analogy between the Jew-Gentile relationship, the slave-master relationship, and male-female relationship. And uh, the church got it right on including fully non-Jewish people into the church. But it took multiple miracles <laughs> to get it through people's heads. And then still, you know, Paul t- talks about Peter standing condemned uh, for sliding back into uh, an exclusionary uh, form of Christianity that was making things difficult on Gentiles to be included. So they they were uh, slow to get that right, and it seems like potentially even in the early church movement, it was maybe a minority of people who actually wanted to fully include the Gentiles. Then, right, with slavery, <laughs> it was the church that perpetuated it, the church that promoted it, and uh, and then the church tried to take credit for abolishing it, even though it was a small minority of people uh, many of them Christians, but it was a small minority of Christians who stood up against the ma- majority. So I think what's what's always been true, what will probably still be true, is when you say uh, in 50 years the, the church won't be talking about this, 
I agree with you if you mean a small percentage of people who call themselves Christians, right? Yes, that happens. The small percentage happens. The other ones, I mean, they die off. And so then the small percentage becomes the majority, I believe. That's what, that's what will happen. Yeah, I think part of the reason I don't feel all that hopeful is we have seen a lot of progress uh, in our lifetime and our parents' generations around the feminist movement uh, and women's empowerment. But our world is still incredibly sexist and patriarchal. And that's just always been the case, right? Uh, And so until the culture gets so uh, far beyond where it is, which I hope it does, uh, that you just can't be a John Piper anymore, right? You just can't be a John MacArthur anymore and still have anyone uh, give you any respect or clout, uh, then then my sense is it'll still be a, a minority uh, within the church. And I, I hope that happens. I wish, my, re- my real hope is that the church would lead the way on that, right? And of course, some people are, but, uh, but that's why we will get pinned uh, and any others who you know, advocate for ordaining women will get pinned as uh, letting modern culture sway us, right, away from biblical fidelity uh, because uh, people actually out there, I actually saw an article from, I think it was Detroit Baptist Seminary, uh, talking about uh, the gender scholarship debate. And it was, it was touching on whether or not Paul was implying that women are more easily deceived than men. Right. And the article actually said, while we're not sure that that's what Paul meant to say, uh, that interpretation certainly has a merit or a point in its favor because of how offensive that idea is in the culture. Because we're supposed to be persecuted, right? Jeez. So literally they were saying the more offensive their interpretation was, the more likely it was to be true. So we're going to have whole other podcast episodes on that whole dilemma <laughs> that we're in, right? Um, but my take is there will always be so many people that are in this culture war that want to fight feminism, that they will, uh, they'll die on that hill uh, rather than, than go with it. And so you're right, it probably will just be waiting for one generation and the next to outlive uh, older generations. Uh, but, I mean, it's this dilemma where we, we literally have two worlds, two churches reading two different Bibles, right? You know, you and I and, and so many that listen to the show, we really see as clearly as possible, that Genesis 3 describes male hostility over women as one of the first symptoms of the fall and sin, right? Like that is one of the first things that has gone wrong and needs to be reconciled with the world or needs to be restored and fixed in the world that Jesus is trying to undo patriarchy. And then there's a whole other world that sees patriarchy and gender hierarchy as written in the Genesis 1 and 2 as part of creation order and feminism is this sinful rebellion against God. So literally it's like two opposing forces, right? Mm. And we can ask like who's going to win or whatever, but I just totally despair that that's like that we can't get people more people to see and, and persuade them to, to see women's empowerment as a as a good beautiful thing right um, whether or not s- somehow and someday that side will die off that's not a very like hopeful <laughs> hopeful vision in my mind at least
So on that, we've talked about how some of this is so messy because our translations uh, literally are are writing into the the English Bibles their interpretations of how we're supposed to uh, interpret these texts. And so we pointed out that the whole conversation around women and leadership is kind of messed up before we even get started because of this whole language of elders and deacons and especially this deacons piece, I point out just how crazy it is that we, in an English translation, we have multiple words that are translated in three different languages in our same Bible, right? So the word diakonos in Greek is transliterated in the Greek word deacon. It's put into the Latin word minister, which is still in there too. And then in... And transliterated just means they didn't do anything. They just brought that word straight over. And so... Deacon is not an English word. and Exactly. And you do that when you think it's a special term, like apostle, right? So apostle means essentially someone who is sent. But we think that's a special term. And so we preserve it as this uh, unique title by not translating it, right? And so you can see this. Uh, I f- forgot to mention this in our past episode. I want to bring it up here because it's, uh, it's just so egregious to me. But First Timothy 3.10 It's talking about sort of this, you know, the ethics applied to deacons. And it says, they must first be tested. And then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. I just read the the NIV. And there's no footnote. There's no italics there to let you see that there might be anything strange (laughs) in this translation. But, But, okay, so it literally just said the word deacon just means servant, right? So literally they're saying, uh, if this is what Paul's writing, he would be saying, let them serve as servants. Uh, But then the crazy piece is is you look at the Greek and the word servant isn't there twice. It's just a verb that says, let them serve. Wow. A verb based on this word, doiakonois. And so they've just filled in for us (laughs) that to serve clearly, you know, in their minds, means to serve in some official title, right? But they've just added words to the text. Like it it literally says, uh, just let them serve. And we uh, write in there uh, in a way that makes it sound to anyone reading this, like your Bible is talking about uh, this official role as deacon. So uh, I think we promised before, we're going to try to do a whole episode on kind of deconstructing uh, these different church titles and looking at uh, basically trying to show that Paul was not nearly as hierarchical as he sounds like he is. Yeah. Uh, but it's just tough, right? When like most of us aren't reading in Greek, <laughs> we're reading in English and uh, it just feels unfair, almost unjust that that would be uh, kind of how our translators uh, lead us uh, to read. Yeah, Totally. All right, we've uh, promised questions, so let's do some questions now. Hello, Nate and Tim. This is Cynthia Hester in Weatherford, Texas. I wanted to thank you so much for doing your gender series. It's been tremendously encouraging to me and I'm sure to many, many other men and women. My question relates today to 1 Timothy 5, verses 9 to 10. I wondered if you have noticed how you can compare that list of the uh, older woman or the widow with the list in 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 5, and the overseer. There's so many similarities between those two lists. And so I'm just wondering 
what you think about that. Uh, if you've uh, done any research on the Order of Widows, um, if that speaks to the older man like the father and the older woman like the mother leading the church. Thanks so much. Okay, yeah. Th- thanks, Cynthia. Uh, I think she's making a good observation here. So uh, I made the argument when we we're talking about First Timothy 3 that Paul isn't creating offices at all. And he's not uh, telling Timothy to, he's not telling Timothy, here are the the job roles and here's what you need to tell people to do when you recruit for these job roles. This isn't monster.com, job postings. (laughs) Correct. Well, we'll post a link to an article uh, by a scholar we love. Her name's Marg Mausko, if I'm saying that right. And uh, she just points out, Listen, Timothy was Paul's closest coworker who went with him everywhere, who is his most uh, trusted ambassador, right? Paul's not describing to Timothy some role that Timothy wouldn't already known about, right? Like whatever he's talking about, these roles, uh, these people are something he's assuming Timothy already has uh, new knowledge on. So he certainly wouldn't be writing a prohibition, right? To say, hey, by the way, Timothy, women can't be in these roles, Like, this is not their first go at this. Uh, If there were such a prohibition, if that was what Paul was writing, uh, it would be a really awkward (laughs) way for him to explain this to Timothy. Either Because if, especially, the point being, especially if this is Paul making a universal rule in churches that women can't be in leadership, why would he write that to Timothy? Timothy already knows all of Paul's universal rules about churches, right? Or his, his norms. So anyway, the, the point I was trying to make is, is this is Paul addressing uh, different sets of people in the community. He's not creating roles. Uh, he's not creating rules around those roles. He's addressing different sets of people, and he's giving them Christian ethics. And so Cynthia's point, I think, is, is spot on, that the ethics applied to the older widows, whether they're going to get on this list— is very similar, sounds a lot like the ethics applied to uh, both the the overseers and the servants in 1 Timothy 3. It has to do with hospitality, raising good kids, being faithful to your spouse, having a good reputation amongst the outsiders, all that. So uh, I think that's further support that that Paul's not trying to create some ecclesial structure. He's just addressing different people groups he knows are in the community. And uh, and remember, all of this is taking place in the context of this church in Ephesus dealing with sort of the strange set of rumors and false ideas related to the Artemis cult and women trying to avoid unwanted pregnancy, basically. So that has to be considered when we think about it. But I think what I pointed out last time is that Clearly, from chapter 3 through chapter 5, Paul keeps pointing out differences in age. In chapter 3, there's the old people and the younger people are servants. In chapter 4, he talks about Timothy uh, being young. And in chapter 5, he's now talking about old widows and younger widows. And so to me, this is just evidence that uh, the real differentiation reason in chapter 3 is he's differentiating between old people and young people in the community with different sets of expectations and assumptions built around that, uh, but that he's not giving some sort of clear uh, ecclesial orders. So good point, Cynthia. Yep. And just uh, ecclesial, ecclesiology, that just means like the church and like how the church is structured and works and all that kind of stuff. Okay. 
Next question comes from, which one should we do here? Let's do Rebecca Bellamy, who emailed in um, this question. Is there a reason why God spoke to Joseph and not Mary about hiding out in Egypt? My current pastor uses that as proof of male leadership in the home. So yeah, so why did God talk to Joseph and not Mary about hiding out in Egypt? Oh man, this is another one I wish we could do a whole episode on. Nate, I'm gonna uh, throw this back to you. Put you on the spot real quick. We've said that like we've said that like four or five. We have like four or five episodes that we've said we're gonna do a whole episode on that just in this show alone. I Guys, think. it's because people's theology is so whack, and theology has a major effect on like world history. <laughs> it's that's really true because you take these things that this person in leadership says, and they say this is what the this is what the Bible this is what God is telling you, and then they say it. And then that people make decisions for their life and for like large groups of people based on what God is saying. And it's like, it's really important. That's why leaders are going to be held at such a higher, and we're not saying like all leaders are bad and the motives are bad. We don't, we're not even going there, but we're just saying it's really important what you're saying to people and what the fruit of those ideas are. And uh, yeah, sorry, I got off the soapbox. <laughs> okay, Nate, I'm gonna put you on the spot and I'm going to time you. In 30 seconds, oh, geez. I want you to do your best job trying to summarize the Jesus Advent story in terms of, you know, this, the story we tell every year at Christmas and have, uh, you know, the church play on stage. Uh, fill in as many pieces of info about that story as you can in 30 seconds. Go. Oh, okay, okay. Um, well, there's... Herod and like so Jesus okay wait let me go back okay so wait um so an angel comes to Mary says you're gonna have a baby um she's not married she's just betrothed to this guy named Joseph and then um is it then that the angel says they're supposed to go away because Herod's gonna kill the 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 firstborn because he heard word of like that there's a uh a messiah figure coming up and so they they leave well I thought the angel told no the angel tells Joseph um, that they're supposed to, they're supposed to go. But anyways, it's because Herod's going to come through and wipe everyone out, uh, wipe out the firstborns, and so they leave. Um, and then there's more after that. But <laughs> ding. <laughs> okay. Uh, gosh, there's so much I want to say. I, you know what? I've actually been wanting to plug this book for a while, so I'm just going to throw a book out there, especially for those of you guys who like reading fiction, and uh, the audiobook's pretty good. Uh, there's a book called The Fifth Gospel. It's it's a novel. It's not nonfiction or whatever it's like a uh, a vatican crime thriller uh but but this this novel was like a sort of anti-epiphany for me in terms of like it just it riled me up so much because it's a crime thriller novel that does better biblical theology than the entire seminary that i went to. <laughs> hmm. it was literally based on better gospel scholarship just to write an entertaining novel than most of evangelical Christian world I've ever experienced. Uh, so actually you could go read a book, have a like fun time, you know, reading a thriller. It's not like violent thriller, just kind of like a crime drama. Um, and actually encounter some better theology than you would get in like a $30,000, uh, seminary degree. So <laughs> here's what made me think of that is, uh, is one of the pieces, um, you know, he draws attention. The main character is a gospel scholar in that book. That's kind of why it happens. Uh, but here's the thing, like our nativity scenes that we do every year are a complete fabrication. Do you, Nate, do you know why I would say that? Have you ever heard the, the have you ever seen the, 
I just see it on YouTube, these little clips of Adam ruins everything. And he like takes a topic and then he tells you how it's not that. And it's like the opposite thing. <laughs> I love that show. And I feel like that's what you just did, what you're doing now with the nativity. It's Malcolm Gladwell's whole living. Yeah. Oh it's yeah. Like you thought you knew. Revisionist history is like one of our yeah. favorite podcasts. But it was all his books too. Okay. Um, why would you, because they usually show white baby Jesus instead of brown baby Jesus. <laughs> true, true. Uh, it's because the story told in our nativity scenes isn't told in any of the Gospels. The story told in our nativity scenes is an amalgam created by jumbling all of the Gospels together to try to make one story of like the history of baby Jesus, which once we do that, it's no longer fitting with any of the gospels. So for instance, why do the gospels say that Jesus ends up in Egypt? To, I don't know what it actually says, (laughs) but the Nate gospel, isn't it like to uh, get away from Herod? Yes, half correct. So Matthew says Jesus and his parents end up in Egypt because Herod was trying to kill him. And so they flee as refugees to Egypt. And then there are these magi, right, that show up. Why? Because Herod sends them out to try to find Jesus so that Herod can go kill him. But in Luke's gospel, you don't have any of that. Herod's not trying to kill Jesus. There are no magi. Instead, you have Caesar Augustus decrees a census And therefore, they're required to leave and go to Bethlehem. So why does this happen? It's because the Gospels are literarily depicting Jesus as somehow fulfilling, very interestingly here, two Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, one which says the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem and one which says the Messiah is going to come from Galilee, which is not Bethlehem, (laughs) right? Galilee's uh, the the outskirts uh, essentially associated with the the northern tribe, Bethlehem is the town of David and the southern tribe. So what do they do? They both tell different stories of somehow Jesus is born in one place but raised in another place creatively. So one is Herod's trying to kill him. He, the family runs away and because he runs away ends up basically having a split childhood. The other one is there's a census. So because there's a census, he's born in one place, ends up going to live in the other place. These are two separate stories. They cannot both be historically accurate. We have a really hard time with that, don't we? (laughs) We have a really hard time with that. So what do we do? We cover it over for everybody by putting on an an advent and a nativity scene where we... But like no one's trying to do... Like, okay, I I get why we have a hard time with that. And and I think it's like right in a way that we have a hard time with this because when we go to this book, uh, we're not not asking the the same questions that the, the writers were answering. And so when we go to this book, we're looking for, okay, what happened. Tell me what happened. Tell me about Jesus's life historically and what he taught historically. Okay. Four different people did that. Okay. I will just pull the pieces and put it together. This is like the harmony of the gospels type of stuff that, that you see. There's nothing wrong with that in this, in the sense of like, there's no motives that are necessarily wrong. They're just wanting this, like, uh, this picture, this complete picture. We do the same thing with the old Testament. We do the same thing with the whole Bible. I have this in my notes for this week. Like, and I want to do, I can't believe I was, I want to do a whole episode on this, but like when we go to the Bible and we, we're actually talking about doing this whole series on like, what is the Bible? How does this thing work? But 
when we go to the Bible, we treat it like kind of like a constitution. This is the word that came to me. I was listening to some other podcast this week when they were trying to like look at this specific law in the constitution and how it then fits in with the rest of the laws in the constitution to interpret what that law means. And I think this is getting a little bit away from the, like the historicity piece, but like, I think that's sort of what we are doing. We're trying to like take all this whole thing and say, what is it all saying together uh, instead of, and then we miss like the pieces, we miss the pictures. We miss that like Matthew is telling, he's trying to tell us a story and probably cares less about the, this is okay, guys. He probably cares less about the specific historical facts and more about the story he's trying to tell. It doesn't mean Jesus wasn't real. Okay. It doesn't mean that he's not the savior. It doesn't mean he's not God, all those things but he probably cares more about the story he's trying to tell. And we miss that story when we try to fit that in with a bunch of other stories that are saying different things so that we make sure our Bible isn't inaccurate. It's infallible. It's not, there's no contradictions. That's we're, we're missing. You, you, contradictions are good because you need to look there because that's where the um, you're going to find something that you haven't found before. Right. So take this back into Rebecca's uh, question. Sorry. Got a little fired up there. That's okay. I like fired up, Nate. <laughs> uh, no, but it it's not off topic at all. So if we go back to Rebecca's question, she asked the question because her pastor is using this one little piece. You know, it'd be like one sentence in one of the amendments of the Constitution, to use your analogy, and and somehow making up that because an angel spoke to Joseph in Matthew's gospel that that means somehow there's this idea of like biblical headship. So how is he allowed to do that? Well, for one, because he missed the meaning of why Matthew wrote his gospel the way he did, which is to layer the story of Jesus's life over the story of Joseph's life, drawing attention to the fact that in Judaism, there were multiple strains Uh, of ideas in the Old Testament that saw a Messiah who would be like a son of Joseph, a son of the guy who suffered, got sent into exile in Egypt, right? Who then experienced a kind of a uh, death and burial and a kind of a resurrection and exaltation to power. Matthew is intentionally mapping Jesus's story onto that. So he's the one who has Jesus go off into Egypt, into exile, right? Because someone's trying to kill him amongst his own people just like Joseph's brothers. And then Herod becomes the Pharaoh figure. And and then Jesus's return or exit out of Egypt into the promised land is the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And he's drawing attention to the fact that, wait a second, there was supposed to be a Messiah who would be like a son of Joseph. And Jesus's dad's name is freaking Joseph. <laughs> okay. Right. He's drawing attention to the fact, to that, significant theological meaning, like really rich, profound meaning. And it's possible that he has the angel speaking to Joseph to highlight that aspect. Well, what happens in Luke? That's not the theological uh, point that Luke is trying to to latch onto. He, he wouldn't necessarily disagree with it. Uh, but what does Luke have? This exquisite moment between an angel and Mary, and then what we call... Uh, so that's why I was confused there, right? It's because the angel says it to two different people. Yeah. So In two different... Okay, gotcha. In Luke's gospel, we have this moment where the angel approaches Mary, and then you have this beautiful 
uh, what we call the Magnificat, the song that Mary sings, which is modeled after the song that Miriam sings in the Old Testament by the Red Sea. And by the way, Mary is just the name Miriam, right? So you have these names connecting, you have similar actions, repeated behaviors. Oh, geez. So like we miss all of that meaning. And then on top of missing all that meaning, you get to come up with a BS and be like, see, Jesus is like pro, pro men. See, the angel talks to the dudes. It'll, it not only misses the point, it allows you to create a whole set of BS. And that, that's where it like, the first one's like, okay, if you don't see all that, maybe you'll see it next time. But the fact is it allows a pastor to stand up on a stage, misuse the Bible as a weapon to disempower women, all the while missing that the reason Matthew actually has an angel talking to Jesus is highlight the fact that we're all supposed to suffer and die and give away our power to empower others. Like that, it just makes me go crazy. It's like the opposite. Exactly. Yeah. It's a and, and this is why we get a little bit fired up sometimes on the show is, um, because we get these emails we hear you all talking and sharing your stories and what you've experienced and it's not like all like physical abuse you know it's not to be at like that level for it to be harmful and to be um, oppressive and damaging and it's this bible that we love and we think is actually saying the opposite of these things um it that's what's being used and so that's why we do this show in the first place and why we are really passionate about um, this show is because there are thousands of you that listen along and uh, and we want to give this Bible back to you and show you that like, no, that wasn't okay. That was not okay that that pastor used that to say that to you. Um, and even though we all have different experiences and we all have varying degrees of like how we've experienced um, the Bible being used as a weapon, uh, that, that seems to be like one of the things that, that kind of unites us. Um, and so that's why we do this show. And um, yeah, anyways, I had to get that. I had to get, let's go. Let's do another question. Okay. Hi guys, this is Daniel from Los Angeles, and this probably won't be my last question, but it's a good warm-up. The things you guys have been talking about, especially with regards to the gender, have really opened my mind to new possibilities in Scripture. And I'm wondering if there are churches or groups that you feel sort of model these teachings in the way that you're describing or these doctrines or these beliefs or i mean how radical is this sort of theology you're talking about and where if i were to look for churches that modeled it uh, would i find those thank you guys and uh, please keep it up oh thanks daniel um really glad that you asked that it's it is uh it's a pretty it's a pretty significant minority churches that um have women pastors priests in leadership like that. I, the, the number I found this week, and I'll link to where I found this, was 11% of all religious congregations in the United States have women in leadership. I think women specifically as pastors. So uh, it's it's pretty, it's pretty small. This article that I'm reading here says, um, many of the largest religious bodies, such as the Roman Catholic, Orthodox, and Southern Baptist Convention do not ordain women at all. So there's a lot of mixture on a lot of these groups. There are some that are just flat out no, like um, the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, Okay, and then, so that's like kind of a bad, I don't know, answer to your question, Daniel. I'm sorry. Um, And then uh, Josh, 
Peterson emailed in a similar question. Given your views, how would you recommend joining the ancient path of Christianity in a way that doesn't compromise your integrity? In plainer words, if all of Eastern Orthodoxy, Catholicism, most Protestantism is rife with gender inequality and complementarianism, where do we join the way? Yeah, eek. I mean, Josh, that is the question, uh, one set of, of questions that I think about every day. And, uh, you know, so I think there's there's two parts to this, right? One is, okay, which churches uh, ordain women? And they uh, invite uh, women into an egalitarian sharing of uh, leadership and power, right? Uh, but I think part of what Willow Creek uh, just showed and put on display is that you can invite women into the power structures of a church, but not at all change the hierarchical toxic way of power that we've been arguing that Christianity is in uh, clear opposition to, right? Uh, it makes me think of, um, I'm going to, I'm going to pitch another, this is a two novel day for me. Uh, <laughs> there's a book called The Power. I thought it was great. Barack Obama thought it was great, so uh, give it a shot. Uh, Naomi Alderman, uh, it's called The Power. The basic premise is um, there's kind of like this mutation that starts happening in women where they develop, uh, or small amounts of women, start to develop uh, like electric powers. And so the book is just basically playing with all of a sudden there's this uh, genetic change that leads to a biological shift where women have physical power over men. And so it changes what's been true forever, which is, you know, the only reason patriarchy has existed is because men are biologically bigger and stronger and can get away with bullying and oppressing women. So the book plays around with the idea of like what happens if that switches. And the the part that I appreciated about the book is it doesn't glamorize if you keep the same approach to power and you just switch who's in power, it's not any better, right? It's just as ugly. And so you end up, and actually, if you have a, a long oppressed and angry people all of a sudden uh, seize violent power, there there's the potential it's even worse than to begin with. None of this is like, hey, don't empower women. I hope it doesn't sound like that. The point is, that's not what Paul's doing, right? That's not what Jesus was doing. He was saying, if we all seek the lower seat of the table, that will always be constantly creating this dynamic where I'm empowering you. And once you're in power, you're going to seek the lower position and you're going to empower me. And it's this constant cycle of shared power, right? So to me, it's much easier to find a church that invites women and is and more people than other churches do to share in leadership power it's really rare to find churches that are actually trying to to give away power and aren't structuring their church as a top-down hierarchical a static situation where the the person at the top is always uh, getting further and further away the power differentials growing between them and the everyday person and so to me that's that's what i'm looking for that's a bigger a bigger ask than uh, simply uh, inclusivity. Uh, it's actually looking for communities that would, on a communal scale, uh, follow Jesus' path of power. And that's where I just think, like, most of the time, as soon as it looks like 
what we are all used to seeing in churches. And it's this hierarchy where you have a lead pastor or a set of lead pastors and everyone else is invited to kind of come in underneath those people. You're not really going to find it there. <laughs> uh, that That is a structurally a different uh, relationship to power than I think what, what Paul was going after. So uh, that's where I, I see the path forward and finding, finding the way is going to, to look very different than what a lot of us are used to, uh, used to looking for. I was thinking about this in kind of a little bit of a different sense earlier today. We've heard from some women that, that say like they totally agree with us, but haven't felt this like desire to be in leadership. And so they don't resonate with like, um, this feeling oppressed because they can't be a leader. And so it's hard for them to actually look at like how that is an oppressive thing for other women who maybe would feel that. And I guess I just wanted to like to say and to, to challenge along those same lines, we don't necessarily just need like the really um, outwardly strong, maybe like more leaning towards like feminist type of women to be leaders, just like we don't need those type of men to be leaders. Um, we also need, and I think we primarily need, those who don't want to get into power so that they can, because they have ideas that they want to like get across and that, you know they want to teach and they want to uh, exercise this authority. We need people that almost don't want to be in power, that almost don't want to be leaders, to be leaders of our churches. Um, because we, we need people that like, you're almost not going to know who the leader is because it's this whole different model for, for what church means and what church is and what leadership and uh, authority even looks like. Um, so much, so often we connect authority with making decisions and, and the kind of the power to make the decision or the final decision or the final say or whatever. And uh, I think we just need to flip that completely on its head. So if you're a woman who's like, I, I don't resonate with this because... Um, I, I see what you're saying and I agree, but like, I don't resonate because I haven't felt that I haven't ever wanted to be a pastor. I haven't ever wanted to be like a, a leader in a church or something like that. I think we need you. We actually, we really need you to be the leaders of our churches. I just want to say that. And, and I'm talking um, out of experience here because I am not like this kind of leader type person. Um, I've, I was actually told by the leader of, of one of my past churches that I was on staff with that I wasn't that I, I wasn't cut out to be a pastor because I wasn't authoritarian. I wasn't like um, like outspoken and like take charge kind of person, and that kind of disqualified me in a sense from being a pastor in in his eyes. And I, I just remember thinking at the time like that's I think that's who we need. Not that I'm saying I should have been a pastor or whatever, but like those are the type of people we actually need leading our churches. Um, so yeah, agreeing with you, Tim, like, I think it's just, we need to completely flip this thing upside down and change the whole, like this whole idea of the hierarchy within a church. Um, right. Anyways, well, that's, uh, that's that question. Totally. And, but I, I'd also add, even if, uh, if nothing changed, no one's sense of, you know, what it means to be a Christian or how power should be treated changed. If you just swapped every male in leadership in the church, for a woman in leadership, we would live in a far more Christian world. Totally, totally. And that, I think, is in large part because men, culturally, in our day, and you could see it in Paul's day, uh, have been groomed and habituated to completely anti-Christian forms of using power, aggression, (laughs) force, uh, basically being the, like, dominant 
uh, competitive, victorious self uh, that that makes it so that men have the the most difficulty conforming themselves to the gentleness, meekness, humility of Jesus in a way that uh, culture, most cultures, uh, and including ours, uh, don't acculturate women as much to those forms of aggressiveness. So literally, even if you just <laughs> swapped, both in the church and in the culture, right? If I think uh, one of the best possible things that could happen for the United States of America is if you if you swapped out every single man who works for our government, <laughs> whether on the Supreme Court justice or whatever, you swapped them out for a woman, uh, just that change in gender dynamic and in representation, I think would do a, a massive thing. And then you realize that was the whole project of the church. Paul uses the body example we touched on. He says, those parts which are considered less honorable by the world, we are going to give higher honor and status. The whole point is basically an affirmative action type thing of saying, you over there, you marginalized person, you slave, you woman, you person of color, you prostitute, you all the people that for whatever reasons society has looked down on, we're going to bring you in, welcome you in as a full equal and actually let you run this ship. We think that's how the world is going to be saved. Hmm. Uh, it's crazy that that sounds so, you know, we get called cultural Marxist or liberal, what all the labels use these days. Uh, but that really was Paul's, Paul's vision, so... Yeah, totally. And I and I'm all, I'm I totally agree with that. I'm just talking that next step of like if we were going to actually fix all the authority right. issues in the church, you have to go to a next step of saying like we actually need the people that don't want to be leaders leading. You know what I mean? Anyways, totally. Okay, yeah. last question, and uh, and then we have to we have to wrap the show. But um, and I didn't tell you about this one, Tim. But um, I'm just gonna say page S on uh, Facebook is kind of listening back through our older episodes, and we did a. We did an episode, episode 14, Give Up Power Like Jesus, um, on our series on power. If you haven't listened to that, we'd love to hear your thoughts. But I felt like this question actually kind of tied into what we're talking about, so I wanted to share it on this episode. She said, this is so good. I want to hear more on how practically to give up the power we have to others socially. Maybe in your ministry, workplace, family, etc., all areas of life, I suppose. Love your work. So I just think that's a great question. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Tim. Like, How do we actually do this? How do we actually, what is this going to look like if um, you, you talked about swapping out all the roles of all the men uh, for women? I think that would be a huge um, start because it would expose so much. But yeah, how do we like practically give up our power, especially as men here? Like how do, how, how do we do this? Yeah, great question. It's one uh, we'll try to touch on now, but I think we're just going to keep keep trying to answer this question uh, indefinitely. So here's the thing. To me, uh, it has to start with with honest awareness and acknowledgement of power itself, right? So in certain circles, uh, especially with people of color and activist circles, people are talking about power all the time, right? In other circles, especially with white men in positions of power and, and in white evangelical churches, uh, power and conversations about power have got lumped in with these like threats against God and the gospel, right? And uh, I'll just say, like, you can't do this if you don't become really good at acknowledging power dynamics and power differentials all over the place all the time, right? And so uh, most of us, laying down power is not going to look like literally picking up a torture device 
and and dying like Jesus did. It's going to be small, subtle, uh, but there will be moments where you could do this literally on an everyday uh, situation. So for me, I had to spend a good two years trying to learn what the different aspects of power going on in my given relationships uh, throughout a day. And part of that meant I had to find uh, trustworthy friends who themselves were wise to issues of power. And that meant specifically women and people of color who know what it's like to be on the bottom side of power differentials and to uh, engage in trusting relationships with those people where they could help me see what I couldn't see uh, on my own. Uh, one of the metaphors I love is that privilege and power is like the wind. And when it's behind you, blowing at your back, you don't feel it. You just, uh, basically, it's like if you're riding a bicycle and the wind is at your back, uh, it just feels like you're going really fast. And you actually think... I'm an amazing bike rider. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It actually makes you think more of yourself and less of the power that is actually the reason you are uh, supposedly succeeding, right? Uh, when the wind is at your face and it's blowing against you, it becomes very obvious what power looks like and feels like, right? And so for those of us who have lived most of our life with the wind blowing at our back, we have to systematically uh, become aware of, of how that wind is blowing. Part of that means literally turning around and facing it. Uh, and so finding ways to get rid of it. So for me, uh, one of these, um, the most practical is literally just in conversations. And I started paying attention to the way power dynamics play out uh, in conversations. And gender is a huge piece of this. And it was really humbling and embarrassing for me to realize how many times, for instance, I would step in and cut off women in conversations or uh, in like group situations where, uh, and this happens all the time in like church Bible studies, where there's no structure to how you're going to talk, right? It's just kind of open-ended and anyone can jump in at any time. Just pay attention to how often it's men that jump in first, right? If there's like silence and someone just jumps in to fill the silence. Uh, men and white men. Uh, and I started realizing, oh, <laughs> it's like almost every time if there's a little gap of silence and people just have to decide whether they should talk based on their own sense of self-identity, white men are going to jump in before anybody else has a chance all the time. So I had to learn that about myself, that I like to talk a lot, choose to acknowledge that feeling and restrain myself from that feeling. Sometimes in some relationships, I actually felt like I needed to confess uh, that feeling. Um, but then I had to go about actually trying to get other people to talk. Right. So that means either instead of me saying what I think, I need to intentionally ask a question and say, hey, Janie, what do you think about this? I'd love to hear what you have to share. Uh, and so just literally, if you just take a few months <laughs> and just think about how you engage in conversations with peers, friends, coworkers, and pay attention to the dynamics of how often you talk, how you talk, whether you interrupt people or if, you know, if you're experiencing the other thing and, and you Never get to get a word in and you feel like you're being interrupted or spoken over all the time. I just saw a stat on Twitter the other day. It was like 92% of conference calls, uh, or it's like in all business conference calls, men speak 92% of the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like uh, this crazy uh, force, basically, you can tell is at work. So for me, anyway, that's just one example for now. But then you can extrapolate that off into your own personal uh, romantic lives, more intimate relationships, or if you're in any position of leadership, 
in church or workforce or whatever, uh, how you treat that power, that's a whole other other realm. Uh, but seeking to in, empower others, uh, give away your power so that at the end, having a goal, that uh, the the power differential between you and uh, and others is shrinking constantly so that one day, not too far in the future, you would be on an equal playing field as peers. Uh, that's kind of what I was touching on. I think those are the only two places where I see Paul uh, it, recognize power as a, as a positive thing worth keeping is in a teaching relationship and in this kind of like elderly parent relationships uh, where like with parents, the goal is to raise your kids so that one day they don't need you anymore, right? And they become peers. And a teacher, similarly, to be a good teacher means your students are not dependent on you for life. They're getting less and less dependent on you. So after they've been with you for a few years, they can go do what you were doing. And just, I mean, that's literally what Jesus did. He had just a couple years with some people and thought that he could leave and it would actually be better. They would do more if he walked away and didn't have their leadership. So, Yep. Uh, I love it. And this whole gender series is really about power. And you'll notice a lot of the stuff we do on the show is about power and it's about laying down power. And we just, we see that all over the place. We see that as the major theme in the Bible and we see it as the major theme with Jesus. And um, so we're going to keep talking about power on this show and it's going to be through a lot of different lenses um, as we go. Nate, okay. I, I have a list of things I wanted to get in the gender series. I just literally want to show that there's more uh, evidence uh, we don't even need to, I don't even need to give the evidence. I'm just going to list it like topically. Okay. Okay. So here's some other things. Nate, we didn't get to talk about it. This whole elder deacon thing. You and I actually saw worlds came from church worlds where, was it a 21 year old dude got appointed to be an elder? Probably. <laughs> in a church. Uh, like so far apart from this whole premise of these are actually old people with clout in the society. It was just like a man. So women can't be elders, but like a 21 year old could be just crazy. Okay. Uh, another piece, the only, uh, text we didn't get into, uh, that's relevant is first Peter three, one through seven, just to summarize it. It's the same idea, mutual submission. Uh, people ignore verse seven, which is Peter telling men to submit to their wives. So, you got that covered too. Read through Romans 16. Women are given prominent positions of leadership. Uh, we haven't even talked about this, but male pronouns for God, like we probably need to have a separate conversation on this. Ooh, yeah. Uh, can I just say, like, try it. Uh, I've, I've realized how uh, by trying to just use God instead of him or his, uh, it realized how acculturated I've been to thinking of God as a man. And I realize uh, we use male pronouns far more than any of the Bible does. Uh, people make that argument of like, ah, oh, Jesus called God Father and stuff. But the biblical authors do not go around referring to him and his. They actually have far more reverent titles for God. So we have added male pronouns where there aren't. So anyway, just try it. See how it feels. It's revelatory. Uh, another piece we talked about, complementarianism is new. It's a workaround of feminism to basically so you can't be sexist anymore so we created this whole ideology based on complementariness uh to reinforce that maybe we'll talk more on that but it's significant um i touched on this in the poem actually but you actually have something going all the way back to genesis 1 2 and 3 where uh, in genesis 1 and 2 there's this uh, passive language that talks about uh what the woman will be called um, but adam's given this job of naming the animals and then he Eve isn't given a name in Genesis 1 and 2. It's only after the fall 
one of the first things that Adam does after uh, sin enters or this whole fall scene happens is he he names Eve, and it's a way of the biblical author saying Adam is treating her like an animal, alluding to the fact that this male hostility over women is one of the prominent symptoms of the fall, meaning this anti-patriarchy scheme is literally written into the Bible all the way back on page three. Almost last piece, pay attention to New Testament uses co-heirs language to talk of women. Like we are, uh, Paul talks about how men and women are co-heirs in the kingdom, meaning we're going to rule with Jesus together. So any form of eschatology that says we're going to rule together has to dictate how we interpret life now in the church as somehow being an inbreaking of that uh, kingdom eschatology. That's a good one. Lastly, okay, this is just something I was reflecting on this morning. I thought it was worth sharing. Like so much when you talk to men, especially male church leaders, there's so much defensiveness about this, right? It's like, it immediately turns into this war and this back and forth. And I was just reflecting on Jesus before Pilate, not even defending himself against false accusations. Theology has always said that is because Christ was bearing the burdens, bearing the sin and the suffering of humanity on his behalf. So I just say like, if you're one of the men who whose gut reaction is to say, I'm one of the good guys and don't accuse me of sexism or patriarchy or whatever, I just want to say, one way you can follow Jesus is to shut up, be silent, and bear yourself the burden, the guilt, the responsibility of men in the church and male Christian history, uh, in a sense, enacting a kind of atonement uh, by taking responsibility for your, your kin. Uh, that's actually a way that we can follow Jesus, which means even if you are one of the good guys, that's not your role to clarify that. Lay that down and acknowledge the hurt, acknowledge the pain, acknowledge the issues, uh, and own it. Power round. I like the power round. Okay, if you want to get in touch with us at all, you can go to almostheretical.com. If you're interested in some conversations we're having in Portland, on November 11th and 12th, we'd love to see you there. We're just, we're not like leading the thing. We're just, uh, everyone's just kind of be chiming in. We're having these conversations together on topics that you want to talk about. So you can sign up for that, email us, send in questions, all that kind of stuff, almostheretical.com. We'll see you next time. Peace. Peace.